Well, good morning, Wilshire, for people here and for people joining us online. It's good to be together today. Um, it's been a busy weekend uh, for Oklahoma Christians. Students are beginning to move back in, and we're blessed and excited to have several students here with us today. Um, our teachers, our professors, they're getting ready to go back to school this week. Yesterday, we had um, out at the lake, the youth group did Lake Day, which typically is the official end to summer. And so all that was going on. And one of the more exciting things that happened yesterday was the beginning of our food pantry ministry. This is kind of a brainchild of Tony Rose. And Tony and uh, Tammy and several other people have been working hard to get this together. Uh, and yesterday we started and we were able to, we were able to provide, uh, I think, about 11 families with lots of groceries and lots of things to help minister to them. And the way this is set up is um, we send out some uh, information to the, to the neighborhood. They will bring us an application process. That's not so we can put them through the ring or anything. It's just so we can make sure we're able to provide um, a lot of stuff to some families to focus that ministry and bless them. And so um, some of you have donated items. There's a small budget item for this to make that happen. And every month, we're going to be ministering to these families uh, and giving groceries and helping them out. Not just a few things. I mean, there were a lot of things that we were able to bless them with. And so please be in prayer about that. It's a wonderful ministry, and I'm excited about that. Well, you know, and I know, that God has an important purpose for your life. That God's design on your life and what He wants from you is more than just showing up on Sundays and sitting in a pew. That's typically how Christianity has been shaped of recent, that we just show up, punch a card, call it good, and go back to our life. And as you read the New Testament, one thing that becomes abundantly clear is God's purpose and plan for all of us is so much bigger than that. That's not to discount what we do on Sundays. That's not at all to discount the meaning of our assembling together. But that's just part of what God is doing in our lives. To borrow from the language of Paul, as Jim has mentioned for weeks, God's purpose, as reflected in Paul's ministry, is that Christ is formed in you. That God wants to take you from where you are and restore us to the full and rightful image bearer of God. And to do that means that we're going to look like Jesus when we bear the true image of God. Now, over the last few weeks, we've talked about God's plan to do that. Jim has put on his professor's hat, and he has described this as God's curriculum for us. And sure enough, as you read through Scripture, you find out that there are certain things in our life that God has pre-planned, that He has put in place. When we're baptized into Christ, the language of Scripture is that something is happening to put us into the story of Jesus, to form us into the image of Christ. That the church in and of itself is part of that curriculum that God intends for us with all our different gifts and all of our relationships to use those, in the language of Paul, to form us into the fullness and measure and the stature of Christ, to look like Jesus. And Jim's talked about how the Word of God in and of itself 
is part of that plan. That God has given us the word so that we can think the thoughts of God and know God's will on our life. So today, I want to talk about another part of that curriculum. If this were laid out as universities and schools typically lay out their curriculums, today's lesson might be considered advanced placement, a graduate level study. In fact, I would even suspect that if you have been to school, if you've, if you've been to college or you remember high school, and you get your course schedule, do you remember what it was like to glance through your course schedule and see that one course that you really wish you could dump? You don't like the teacher, you don't like the topic, you certainly don't like what they're going to make you do in this course. And my suspicion is today's class is that class. Because when you look down on the syllabus, the title of the class is Shaped Through Suffering. There's a recent article written by a preacher by the name of Steve Norman in Preaching Today. Here's what he says. On any given Sunday, the odds that one person in your sanctuary is struggling with loss, heartache, rejection, loneliness, or failure is 100%. The husband who wandered in because his wife just served him with divorce papers is yearning for consolation. A young man was recently arrested for his second DUI, scrambling to escape the maze of addiction. A woman who lost, a couple who lost their infant daughter to SIDS. The grief is suffocating. Every single week they come. Familiar faces with old wounds, new faces with fresh scars, and almost everyone pushes the pain just deep enough below the surface to hide from the most discerning eyes. Everyone in this auditorium and everyone watching online has experienced some form of suffering. In my 18 years at Wilshire, because we believe in Paul's call to bear one another's burdens, I have seen this church pray together, cry together, set in surgical waiting rooms together, We've rebuilt lives together. We've watched faithful men and women of God suffer. And we have attended far too many funerals. And in virtually every one of those situations, in every case, there is this age-old, hauntingly familiar question, why? Jim and Ryan talk to us about Psalm 22. It's a question that faithful people of God have been asking generation after generation. I suppose there's a sense in asking the question that we feel like if somehow we knew the answer of why, then maybe that would somehow make it more bearable. If God would just tell me, you know, the reason I'm putting you through this is because, then maybe somehow we think, okay, I can, I can do that. Or I think we search for the answer why, because if we know the answer, we think we can somehow fix it. And we can somehow make it end so we don't have to deal with it anymore. 
And so being people of the book, people who love Scripture, we run through our Bible in search of that evasive answer to the question of why. And when we arrive at Scripture, we find there is no simple answer. In fact, I want to show you something. Just take your Bible, open to Genesis chapter 1. And actually, in the first six chapters of the Bible, the question of suffering is all over the pages. Of course, you have Genesis 1 and the creation of God. God speaks and everything comes into existence. And the writer of Genesis says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then you get to chapter 2. God, the creation story is retold this time through the lens of God intimately involved in creation. God is viewed as a farmer toiling the soil with his hands. God is viewed as a surgeon cutting the side of Adam. God is intimately, he's not just outside of creation. Genesis 2 says he's part of within the working of creation. And then chapter 3 of Genesis, it all collapses. You know the story, Satan shows up, the serpent shows up and tells Eve, did God really say you can't eat of any tree that you want to? Look at this. And when Eve takes the fruit, and Eve shares the fruit, creation collapses. Now, we can step back from the text and say, see, the reason they suffer is because they made poor choices. They suffered because they chose not to trust God. Therefore... Anytime someone suffers, we simply say, what did you do? But then you turn to Genesis chapter 4. And you find out that Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. And because God accepted the sacrifice of Abel and rejected the sacrifice of Cain, Cain gets jealous and he kills his brother Abel. Now back up and ask the question, Why did Abel suffer? He did nothing wrong. In fact, he's the one that did something right. Why do the righteous in Genesis chapter 4 suffer and the wicked survive? We're just in Genesis 4, brothers and sisters. This question has been on the pages of Scripture for generation after generation. The righteous suffers The wicked survives. Sometimes we suffer because of the actions of other people. That explains it, doesn't it? And then you turn to Genesis chapter 5. Eight times you find out this person lived and died and died and died and died and died and died and died. Death is all over Genesis chapter 5. Why are people dying? Well, it's the results of the fall. God told Adam and Eve, you don't trust me. All of creation fell. Death is opened up. Death gets baked into the cake. Suffering and toil and thorns and thistle, creation itself falls. 
So here we are, Genesis chapter 4, or Genesis chapter 5, and we have a third reason for suffering. Adam and Eve suffered because of their choice. Abel suffered because of someone else's choice. All these people are dying because creation itself has collapsed. And then you get to Genesis chapter 6. God sees that every intent of the heart of man is evil. And now God sends a flood. And divine retribution brings about suffering. It's just the first six chapters of your Bible. You get all these views of suffering. Why do we suffer? The problem is, that sounds good on paper, but life isn't always that tidy. Explanations aren't always that clean. The problem is, we don't always know which one of those things is at work. There's a good family friend of ours who lost their child to cancer when he was really young. And all these years later, this good brother still asks, what did we do to cause it? Which one of those five explanations do we offer? Was it a choice they made? Was it a choice someone else made? Is it just because creation itself has fallen? Is it divine retribution? It's not always clear. And besides that, the rest of Scripture doesn't allow every scenario to fit into our convenient packaging. There was a man by the name of Job, upright, feared God, shunned evil. And his life completely fell apart. Now, if you read the book of Job... Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, show up, and they're offering one of those convenient explanations that we've just talked about. Well, Job, you've done something wrong. Well, Job, God is punishing you. And the problem is, none of those explanations provide any relief to Job. In fact, Job's story doesn't fit into any of those explanations. So when you arrive at the New Testament, something strange takes place. The New Testament offers a remarkably unique and strange view of suffering. Let me show you what I mean. In Acts chapter 5, the disciples, the apostles, are told to quit preaching in the name of Jesus. They're beaten. The Sanhedrin releases them. And Luke says, they left the council and they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. Acts 14 and verse 22, Paul and Barnabas are returning home from a mission trip. And as they go from church to church, Paul and Barnabas tell them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Or Philippians 3 and verse 10. 
Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his rising. Share in his suffering. Conform to his death. Or there's 2 Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or there's James chapter 1 and verse 2. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but pure joy. Or the text that Ike read, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Rejoice since you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Are they crazy? Have they lost their mind? We do everything, almost everything we do, we do to avoid suffering, don't we? Medical research is trying to alleviate suffering. Technology is trying to make it to where you don't have to go through any pain to get to work or while you're at work. We don't like suffering. So how in the world can anyone in their right mind say, you know what, when you suffer, thank God for that. Or as Paul says, I want to suffer. I want to know Christ and to share in his suffering. The New Testament radically changes its view of suffering. It does not discount all of the other questions that are out there. It does not neatly package any of those examples. Sometimes people do suffer because of their own bad choices. Sometimes people do suffer because of other people's choices. Yes, suffering is the result of a fallen world. And yes, sometimes God sends things in people's lives to bring them back. But the New Testament doesn't go down that road. The New Testament doesn't even try to explain things. The New Testament does something remarkably different. You are suffering, Paul says, not because God has rejected you. Actually, it's evidence that God has accepted you. (laughs) That's what he says to the church in Thessalonica, chapter 1. Your suffering and your persecution, that's evidence of God's righteous judgment. What? How can you say that? In some cases, Paul will even argue, God's not here to save you from your suffering. God is here to save you through your suffering. I told you, if you can make it to the registrar's office, you might want to drop this course. And the way they redefine suffering is in the story of Jesus. Suffering is because the world is fighting against the incoming kingdom of God. That's why Jesus suffered. He knew no sin. First Peter will consistently say Jesus suffered innocently. He had no sins of his own. He suffered because of the choice of other people. Jesus suffered because of the wrath of God, not for his sin, but against all sin. 
Jesus suffered because creation itself was fallen. And in the story of Jesus, all of those explanations and all of those whys come together. And Jesus chose to suffer. So that through his suffering, the kingdom of God could come about. Whatever the cause of suffering, the New Testament argues the cure of every form of suffering is the kingdom of God. And yes, there are the typical explanations to suffering that you often hear, that there's something formative about suffering. That rarely gives me much comfort. You remember, if it doesn't kill you, it does what? Makes you wish you were dead. Well, sometimes. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Or no pain, no gain. I don't like that. There is some formative nature to suffering, even in the life of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And that argument is in your New Testament. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I'd had these remarkable visions and God had showed me incredible things. But God didn't want me to become arrogant and conceited about it. And so he says, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. There's something sometimes formative in our suffering. Paul says it again in Romans chapter 5. Just after saying we have peace with God and access to God, he then turns around and says, not only so, but we glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. As we suffer, Paul argues, our dependence on God increases. And our dependence on self decreases. That's not comforting. I don't like that part. But there is something formative when we suffer. But the argument you see most of the time in Scripture is that as we suffer, when we suffer, we are being made into the image of Christ. When we suffer innocently, that's what happened to Jesus. Time and time again, Peter argues that Jesus did not commit sin himself. He was guilty of nothing he did against God. Through his stripes, we are healed. When a man or a woman refuses to compromise their Christian standards and they lose their job as a result, you're being shaped into the image of Christ. And that's painful. The kid who refuses to go along with the crowd and gets made fun of. It's the same story of Jesus. 
the person who is persecuted simply because you were made in the very image of God. And some people are so blinded by hatred and prejudice that they refuse to see it. Isn't that the story of Jesus? When we suffer innocently, the New Testament argues it's the story of Jesus at work in your life. It's ugly, it's painful, it's unjust. Or when we suffer faithfully, that Jesus prayed in the garden, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And he died. He suffered because he was the faithful son of God. And the New Testament argues that because he was the faithful son of God, every force of evil tried to stop him. That all of fallen creation summons its power and summons its strength and chose the cross and maybe that will shut him up. That's why he died. You see, the typical model of religion is serve God, be faithful to God, and he'll get you out of suffering. And the New Testament flips that on its head sometimes and says, no, your suffering is because of God's faithfulness, because of God's kingdom, because that's what God calls us to. That's not the explanation we like. It's not an explanation I like. But when Jesus becomes the template and Jesus' formation is the curriculum, that's the path we go through sometimes. The one thing about this that I really like, that the New Testament time and time argues, they argue that his suffering was innocent, they argue that his suffering was faithful, they argue that his suffering was inevitable because he was the son of God and this was God's plan. But this one I like. The suffering of Jesus was temporary. Hebrews 2.9, he was made a little lower than the angels for just a little while. But now he is crowned with glory and honor because... He suffered death. And because Paul viewed his suffering through the lens of Jesus' story, he says this, 2 Corinthians 4, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's temporary. That is admittedly hard to understand right now. And it makes very little sense as we sit through our suffering. Now I want to show you that I haven't just been making all this up. Romans chapter 8 is where Paul brings all of this together. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul is writing to a church that's struggling and it's suffering and experiencing hardships. And Paul uses this remarkable image to describe suffering. Chapter 8, verse 18. 
I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. It's temporary. For the creation waits with eager longing, with revelation of the sons of God. Picture that. Creation is standing on its tiptoes, leaning out the door, watching to see what's coming. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. When Adam and Eve sinned, creation fell. It collapsed. And we feel that with every sickness and disease and pandemic and abuse and injustice, Paul argues that is creation, fallen. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. That's why they're suffering. Creation is groaning and it's longing for God's redemptive purpose. And he gives us a picture. Creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I'm like Jim. I don't want Yodi mad at me. I don't want Delana mad at me, but I've seen the pains of childbirth. Not firsthand. I mean, I was in the room. I saw it. It ain't pretty. But then, out of the pains of childbirth comes new life. Newness and hope and energy. And Paul says, think of that. Why are you suffering? Because creation is groaning, it's hurting, it's falling. Because the forces of evil are throwing everything it has at you. The very fact of your suffering is signs of righteousness because God does because the evil powers do not want the kingdom of God to be present. And so we hurt and we suffer and pay, and Paul says, but that's groaning for the birth of something new. And then he argues. There's a lot between this that we don't have time to talk about, but look at verse 28. We know we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's our curriculum. That's the purpose of everything we go through. To shape us into the image of Jesus. You see, Romans 8.28 is often used in the midst of pain and suffering. In kind of a Pollyannish sort of way. If you're suffering, the Bible promises all things work together for good. So you lost your job in the pandemic, it's going to be better. You'll get a better job, a better paying job. That's not the good Paul has in mind. Because sometimes the better job doesn't come. 
Sometimes better health doesn't come. But Paul's argument is the image of Christ is what God wants to come. And that image of Christ is ultimately what creation is leaning out the door in attempt to see. Where Paul argues back up earlier in the chapter that we will receive new bodies. That Jesus was raised with a new body and all of this pain and all of this suffering and all of this hurt is somehow shaping us into the image when God finally, in our resurrection, gives us a body that ultimately looks like Jesus. I understand that's not the most comforting thing in the midst of suffering. And I certainly understand that does not answer every question there is. But that's the only way to explain why it is that every time Paul suffered, he rejoiced. Why Peter tells the church, rejoice that you are able to share in the suffering of Jesus. Because God is shaping you and forming you. And it's a sign that creation wants nothing to do with you, at least the forces of evil within creation. Atheists often like to throw out the question of suffering. If there is a God, they say, he is either too callous and uncaring to stop suffering, or he is too weak and unable to do anything about it. The problem is that's kind of a false dichotomy, a false choice to make. On the one hand, atheism has no better answer. Because according to atheism, pure, raw atheism and naturalistic evolution by itself, suffering is the only thing you can expect. Goodness has no explanation in atheism. Random chance doesn't explain the amount of goodness we see. And in fact, biological evolution in and of itself thrives because of suffering. The weak are destroyed. Someone's got to suffer and the weak are going to suffer so that the strong can make it. Does that bring you any comfort? The atheist explanation is no better. However, the one thing that cannot be said in light of the cross is that God is uncaring. If anything, the cross blows that argument to pieces. Because God stepped in the form of human flesh to suffer as we suffer. So what about the part about God being too weak and unable to stop it? What if the answer is we're too small to understand it? I love my son with all my heart, but when it's time for him to get a shot, things get ugly. And I try, and his mother tries to explain to Keaton that that shot is actually good for you. He doesn't buy it. He still doesn't want it. 
That's not a full and complete explanation of suffering. And any preacher that comes along and tells you they've got it figured out, don't listen to them. But the false choice that God is either uncaring or unable is a false choice. Because Jesus died and suffered with us and suffered for us. And we're called to be shaped into his image. And we're called in such a way that does not always make sense and does not always bring us comfort in the moment. But by faith, we trust in a God whose purpose is far greater than we can even conceive of. Now this is the moment in the conclusion of a sermon where I'm supposed to tell you a great heart-wrenching, uplifting story of someone who suffered and came through. I don't want to do that this morning. Instead, I want to let Paul have the final word of our sermon. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us these things? Who will bring any charge before God's chosen? God is the one who justifies. Who then will condemn us? No one. Christ died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Can trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? It's written, For your sake we face death all day long. And we are considered sheep for the slaughter. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our prayer this morning is that Christ will be formed in you. So we offer the invitation in the name of the one who suffered for us, and who invites us into a story that is often uncomfortable, but is always purposeful. To believe in Jesus Christ, who has promised one day to redeem our bodies and all of creation. If you need to answer that invitation this morning, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.